Welcome to Talking Sock. Larissa Deek is an interdisciplinary teaching artist with a practice that stretches from puppetry to stilt walking to 2D animated crankies. In this episode, we discuss how Lara pieces together an arts practice centered around being a mother in her local community and her projects with Volcana Women's Circus, Create Annalie and The Wiggles. You have to do it. Like, to act is to do, and puppetry is the same. Join Lara and I now here on Talking Sock. Welcome to Talking Sock, your place for puppetry arts and practitioners in Australia and abroad. My name is Alex Joy, and today I am visiting in Queensland. I'm joined today by artist, educator, mother and puppeteer, Larissa Deek. We are recording today on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and on Yagara country. We pay our respects to elders past, present and acknowledge the sovereignty that was never ceded and that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Lara, thank you so much for recording with us today. How you doing? Yeah, thanks, Alex. I'm very well. It's a beautiful, sunny day here in Brisbane. I'm sitting on Yagara Country, and I'm really happy to be here to talk with you about puppets. We are so excited to have you. Okay, so big question. Why puppets? I'm the child of Mr. Squiggle, the Henson Juggernaut, and Ozzy Ostrich. So in my family, I grew up in Tari, mid-north coast, New South Wales with my mother and three sisters and almost religiously we would sit glued to the television watching Sunday The Muppet Show. Uh, on a Saturday we'd often have Hey Hey It's Saturday in the background so Aussie Ostrich was part of that as well and in the mornings we would watch Sesame Street and Mr Squiggle. So these are the characters that uh, I guess helped raise me up and to add on top of that my mum lives in the house that was her grandmother's maternity hospital, large, uh, beautiful house with wraparound verandas. And my sisters and I would spend hours making homes for Barbie. In fact, Barbie had quite an extensive home wrapping all around one of the verandas at certain times and spent hours playing with dolls, making houses, dressing them up, a world of, yeah, manipulating little figures. (laughs) Believe it or not, uh, this is actually the first episode that I've recorded with an Australian puppetry artist and artist from Queensland. So, you know, without that knowledge being accessed in previous episodes of Talking Sock, can you tell us a bit about your practice as an artist and also a bit about the landscape of puppetry arts in Mianjin? I would call myself a teaching artist at the moment and I work with communities. I have a strong connection to my own community, Annalie. We have a, a group called Create Annalie where we try to activate the neighbourhood. One project I'd like to talk about is the Create Annalie project. So it was a project in three parts over a series of weekends leading up to the festival day where we presented our works. It was actually inspired by a, a festival that Kei the um, Secretary of Unimar Australia, went to in Italy and she um, posted some large cardboard puppets on her socials and I had been talking with my Create Annalie team about wanting to do a parade in the neighbourhood. So I'm a stilt walker, my girls are stilt walkers, one of my daughters roller skates, and I was like, how are we making this? Part of the problem with my neighbourhood is we have this massive big road that intersects the community. So Ipswich Road, literally between 
Ipswich and Brisbane, the main connecting road, but it cuts through the heart of the community of Annerley. And so we have a community group that trying to find ways to activate the neighbourhoods and placemake in a way that's not based on the cars and trucks that drive through our community. Right. So we basically secured some funding to do some community projects. So one was a songwriting project where people came together and wrote a song about Annerley. Another one was a graffiti project where they worked with a, a paint shop just up the corner and they worked with the artist out of there and they made a sign that said Annerley. And then I worked with participants over three weekends and we used the recycled cardboard from the bike shop up the corner and we made large 2D cardboard puppets with big faces. So basically I tried to get the participants to think about what they love about this place and what they want to see, be bold and colourful. So we had giant buildings with arms and we had um, happy faces. We had a pizza. We had a bird. I made two big um, giant faces, beautiful big puppets. And then on the day of parade, we literally started up at Braille House, which is on Ipswich Road, beautiful place which has a library of Braille books, like even one Harry Potter book. Oh, my goodness. There's so many books just to read the first Harry Potter book in a Braille book. It's quite fantastic. They have that just up the road there. And anyway, there's a, a blind community around here as well. So it's a really important thing having safe passage across the road, across mm. the road to a primary school as well. So it's really important. Anyway, so we started at Braille House. We paraded along Ipswich Road and then we just blocked off. I think there was about 15 big puppets and then a mass of people, people on roller skates, people on stilts, people walking along with high-vis vests so it didn't matter that we were crossing the road. And we basically went around the street, up and down the street, all the cars beeped and had a joyful kind of moment and then we set the puppets up so people could um, have a look at them. And it was really nice just to claim, reclaim the street for pedestrians but to do it in a creative way that was fun and that people got to have a hands-on involvement in the creating of those puppets. And then just a marker, I guess. That was 2019 and we actually haven't done a big project like that since because I guess all the COVID restrictions. So actually next week we're having our first Create Annerley meeting. So we'll see what we can do this year, but hopefully we get to do something visually exciting and I love puppets so hopefully we get to do something with puppets again. I also work on projects with Volcana working well training uh, trainee trainers to learn how to stilt walk and also how to have shortcuts into physical theatre making through the body. Uh, my day job is at the Museum of Brisbane so I'm a, like a museum educator and specialist tour guide with them and I I'm a mum of three and um, they're all busy as well. So, yeah, so my practice kind of encapsulates my day job, which is historical and art-based, and then all my various community interests, so circus, placemaking, and uh, where the girls actually go to school. And for context, Volcana is the women's circus in Queensland, is that correct? That's right. Volcano Women's Circus is, I, yes, yeah, the oldest women's theatre organisation in Queensland and I've been working on and off with them actually even since I first came to Brisbane in 2004. I actually had the best project with them back then. I was a stilt trainer for I think it was 
16 weeks. So it was part of a Viva Frida festival that was happening at that time at the end of the year. And I got to teach stilts to then devise choreography, rehearse, and then perform with a team of stilt walkers with um, Celia White as a director. And it was quite fantastic because along the way I became pregnant. And so I was literally teaching backward shoulder rolls on stilts while I was probably seven months pregnant. So little Gracie was born. She was grown up in a kind of crazy physical theatre land. Yep. That's amazing. And also in my research, I bumbled across something that I kind of was blown away by. Is it true that you were a puppeteer on the first season of The Wiggles in the 1990s? Yeah. So um, (laughs) I I used to work with Sydney Puppet Theatre with Sue and Steve, and they were friends with Graham Haddon. And Graham, I believe he was the director on those Wiggles puppets. Must have been 1998, I think. Uh, it's actually really fun. I got to puppeteer all of the, you know, colourful skivvy guys, as well as Kaz the Cat, which I quite liked. And then, you know, some of the, I think Henry the Octopus, all those kind of guys. But um, yes, I did get to sit in the big red car. And um, <laughs> I think <laughs> it, it was actually really, really great. Like the first time I did anything for TV, I, I've done a few little TV jobs. Like when I moved up to Brisbane, I did... um. New McDonald's Farm here with Chris Lane, which was quite fun, very different style of puppetry. I don't know why I tangentially got um, invited to puppeteer on the movie Nim's Island, which sadly, not credited, like if you look at the credits, the only puppeteer on that film is Richard Newick, but quite oh. frankly, if you look at the puppets, you can clearly see one person, there's no way that they could have done all the puppetry in that film. So mm. only he got credited, sadly. Also... In terms of TV, uh, actually, going back to the Wiggles, uh, on that, I think uh, Matt McCoy was on there. So when I went back to uni and studied, I connected with Matt because I did Bachelor of Arts in Theatre Theory and Practice at University of Western Sydney. And so we had to do practicals in, you know, professional settings. So I contacted Matt because he was working at Farscape. And so I got to do my practical project in Farscape as a puppeteer and then I got to do some casual work thereafter. So I think not everyone had a great experience on that Farscape set, but I certainly did. And I guess if I wasn't at uni and I was focused in a different way, uh, in hindsight, why didn't I work on them? Or I don't know, had a million things going on. Also, just tangentially, on that show, I think her name was Fiona Gentle. So Fiona was a, another female puppeteer. And I remember at that time, she would only do a shift from time to time. and. I couldn't work out, like, Fiona, why are you here all the time? And she would say, oh, I'm a mum. I can't do, I can't work the same way as these single people can. And it sort of puts, it was like, the fact that I remember it now is like, oh, I really noticed that she, as a primary caregiver, had to really make time to be able to work in her chosen field. Yeah. I definitely want to ask you more about your role as both an artist and a mother in a little bit later, but I'd actually like to just jump back into Volcana and the role that you played there, because I love that Volcana as an organization tackles the inequity of representation in the industry. And I'd like you to tell us about your time with them. Obviously you've mentioned that you're a stilt walker and that you were training people but also how your practice and your inquiry as an artist is informed by feminism and informed by that inequity and representation. 
Thanks, Alex. Yeah, Volcana is an organisation very close to my heart. I think um, they've been very supportive to me as a creative uh, woman over my time in I've had multiple roles at Volcana. So I started off as a stilt trainer. Then after a period, I took on the role of the outreach coordinator. So working with different communities to, I guess, connect organisations together and then work with the young people that we generally work with. So I did a project once with Rwandan refugees. Another one, we worked with people living with cerebral palsy. I took a group of beautiful young stilt walkers up to the Dreaming Festival, which was an Indigenous arts festival on the Woodford site for, I think it was 2008, 9, 10 maybe. That doesn't exist anymore. But these beautiful girls down from Inala, they'd never performed in front of a big crowd before and you could just see their confidence really growing. It's nice actually. Then I became the Volcana Kids Coordinator and we kind of helped set up their kids program. So there was always a, we call it a Volcademy, so where the training people come in and they train, but they never really had a kids version. So we set that up, which is pretty successful, actually. I think there's three days of kids classes that happen at the Volcana space now. Wow. Also, I've worked on a number of shows with Volcana. So as uh, like a puppet coordinator, one was the Wizard of Auslan. So we, we worked with the Brisbane deaf community here and I worked with them with Shadow Puppets. So we created it was a retelling of The Wizard of Oz, but the different characters all had different communication style and they had to all come together and Auslan at the end brought them together. So we had shadow puppets and we had vignettes where they would make shadow forms with their bodies and the shadows would walk over them. Quite beautiful. Another project that I worked on that I really love and I really um, respect Volcana for is Grave Effects. So Grave Effects was in October of 2011 and I'd had my third child, Ludmilla, in April of 2011. So Ludmilla was six months old and I did basically, I was a part of this promenade-style theatre in the historic Tawong Cemetery and it was like a physical theatre act, circus acts. I supervised a group of women who made a shadow sequence talking about different characters that were buried in the, the space itself and then I made and then performed a, a puppet, a baby. Like my section was in the unnamed grave for the babies that were either stillborn or died very soon after birth. So I made a tiny baby puppet with latex, you know, like I remember pouring the latex into the mould and Ludmilla crying in the background and me just like, I just need to get the bubbles out of this latex. Oh, wow. like, and then, um, yeah, and then puppeteered that with like a little vignette with the the grave digger. It was quite great. But just the fact that I felt supported to be part of that whole project when I had a little tiny baby and they were very, um, like I have, even as I'm speaking, I'm remembering people taking her in the green room, which was the breakout room in the, the cemetery sort of meeting room. But it was quite, yeah, a really great family. Gosh. And I do feel that there are so many artists who are torn between their practice as a creator and their duty as a parent. But also it sounds like Volcana was really nurturing of, of that duality. I know that this has been the case for you because you do have three children and I'm not a parent. So, but I know that there's going to be so many of our listeners that will be kind of in this tussle between being a parent and being a mother and then trying to maintain a consistent art practice. So how have you managed to step in and out of that practice over the years while raising children? And can you reflect on the, the struggle or the joys or how 
it informs what you do? Yeah, I am really fortunate to have a supportive husband. So Matt, he understands my, well, it's my skill set and my education is right in theatre, community building and intercultural theatre and especially focusing on my love of puppetry. So he, sometimes I think he's frustrated by my eclectic jobs that I take on, but he's very supportive. And the three girls, they've grown up in the world of theatre as well. So mm. they're very supportive. Like when, when the, I took a job, like I literally got married in 2003 in March. And then I think in July, I moved to uh, Seoul, Korea with Lat Oreni Gukjang, that children's theatre. And I worked on The Little Dragon, which was a um, puppet musical. We did three shows a day, I think uh, maybe six days a week for six months. And it was quite a fantastic experience especially with that concept of doing a show repeatedly for a long period of time, which as a performer, it was just so powerful to have that opportunity to find that what I found actually, this is my takeaway, is that you never get always better and better and better and better. What what you learn is how to always hit the mark so that all your fellow almost know what you're going to do and know how to um, bounce off what you've just done. And so they're never uh, afraid of what could possibly go wrong. But the best shows were the ones where we all hit the mark and we're all in the moment, you know, that collective breath on stage. But it was such a learning tool because it was so rare to um, do a show over such a long period of time, the same show. And even though for a period it was – kind of did my head in because it was in very basic English and some little bit of Korean, but um, it did get very repetitive, but you have to then go past that and go, oh, this is actually a job and I'm doing it because every single audience is a brand new audience and they need as much joy from this as the person who was here week one. And as a performer, it was a really great learning curve for me. And um, Roger Rind, may rest in peace, he um, was very generous with his time and a lot of artists actually went um, from Australia to work at that children's theatre in Seoul, which Gangnam, like it was amazing. Theatre built for children, children-sized toilets, murals all through the venue. It was quite fantastic. It doesn't exist anymore. They, Yeah, they have a smaller space now, but um, it was a privilege to be a part of that puppet musical life. Like, yeah, it was a great um, opportunity for Australian puppeteers to work over a great period of time on a single show. You know, working like that on a touring show, or even in a in a, a seasonal show, uh, in the same place, it, it is just cutting your teeth, isn't it? Like it's it's yeah. the ability to really get down to it, to do it every day. Uh, I, I think that's the thing that Australian puppeteers are really hungry for: is opportunities like touring oh. shows or yep. residential shows where you can just do it every day for a little bit of time so that you have that basis of practice to fall back on and and, and you, you do, you learn because there's like, it's, it's your day job. (laughs) When I just had grace, I remember I would make time each year to go maybe like two weeks. One year I went to the million puppet project over in Perth and I did that workshop with Joanne Bashas and we did, a performance and I watched all the shows and I went there and then I came back. Another time I went, um, I, actually I worked on 
with Hands On Art, which is a community arts organisation here, when I first moved to Brisbane. So this is when I was with Grace probably. I went to Baduri, and which is like right on the border out near Queensland and Northern Territory, out past Winton. Wow. And I basically was a week out there with a, a, a school, or was actually a community. People would come off all the stations and the kids came in for a week of workshops. So I did paper mask making, like 3D modelling. Another group did a stop motion animation and another person did drama classes and at the end we all presented. But it was, it was really great for me to just take that time, do something that was my work related and then come back in. And um, I've done that less and less, but as they get older, I kind of rely on them a bit more, which I'm sure Grace and Freya, they don't particularly like, but um, <laughs> they probably look after Ludmilla more than I would have left them alone when they were her age. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny because just hearing you talk about your journey through the arts, you almost use the the children as a marker of time <laughs> you know I you, do. yeah and yep. and I, I I love that like I love that it's actually those people who mark the, the time and place rather than say the work or the year and you mentioned community so much in just those last few answers so like me you're a committee member of Unimar Australia which is part of a global organization that represents a global community of puppeteers and you've mentioned that you're a facilitator, an educator, a guide, a builder of community in your own work. So I think it's really important to ask what community in puppetry means to you, but also what community building means to you. So community, I think there are multiple communities and even communities within communities. So the term community is an overarching term that is useful, but also sometimes is so broad that it misses the micro communities within it. Anyway, that's a whole nother conversation. But uh, (laughs) my puppetry community. So I left my town of Tari when I was 17, moved to Sydney, and I studied drama at University of New South Wales, dance and drama. And I kind of just opened my up to the history of all the things to do with art. And then I went away and worked mainly as a technician, like a spotlight operator, like Mm -hmm. theatre tech at Sydney Opera House, all that kind of stuff, really just money-making in the world of theatre. I wanted to not take a job that wasn't in the art, so do all this backstage stuff. And then I realised that people started asking me to, like, light their shows and do things. I was like, oh, this is a line in the sand. If I keep doing that, I'll become, that'll be who I am. But Mm. all the time I'd been working with um, physical theatre and puppetry. So when I finished university I worked with Kinetic Energy Theatre Company and I not only would work with them on their stuff but I would also teach drama at Newtown Public after school and uh, I would teach them how to use puppets I guess in their work because we'd always just do I'm really into making self-devised work so I really Mm. take it from the participants and create from their ideas so I think um, it frustrates some people to start like that but I feel it's really powerful it gives ownership to the idea the final product becomes more powerful when everyone's had a say in the creation of it so I really love group devised work Mm. but um, I'm I'm getting to a point now um, (laughs) around that time I thought I'd do a workshop with the Sydney Puppet Theatre and I did and when I met them I felt like I'd I don't know like I felt like I'd found my people and I kept being drawn back to Sue and Steve because they were just so generous with their time and with their skills and 
eventually I got to work with them and I would observe their community. So I would sometimes very infrequently go to the the guild meetings down at the rocks and just marvel. There's like fucking Norman Hetherington right there, you know. Like <laughs> As a young woman, I was starstruck. And the more I was with them, then the more I got involved with Sue and Steve, the more I sort of was on the periphery of some of the things they did. So like One Van, for example, like when One Van mm-hmm. Puppet Festival happened, it was it was the most welcoming community that I'd really ever been a part of. And I was so happy to be a part of that whole, wasn't just over a couple of years. I can't, actually, I'm looking at my notes, 1998 to 2005. So that was a really massive thing that people would go there with their one van, make their work and show each other. We'd have adult cabarets. It was so fun. But Sue and Steve really mentored me to there was two years where we did um, puppetry in people's lounge rooms or kitchens and the the audience would promenade from house to house in the town of Blackheath up in the Blue Mountains and watch the four different. So we did um, the four seasons one year. We did the four elements uh, another year. I remember Sue and Steve mentored us to do the four seasons, the four different puppeteers. I created a little short sequence for somebody's kitchen bench based on autumn with random little puppets, little benchtop rod puppets and little wire marionettes and Richard Hart reviewed it in um, The Australian Puppeteer and I remember just being so proud that he got it. He's, I think the term was he said it was like a visual poem and I was like, oh, my God, he mm. got it. He, I didn't want a narrative. I just wanted a visual poem and I felt like, oh, someone got me and it, it made me connect even more. So. Once that puppetry community, as that grew, I remember going actually to Melbourne to that animatronic and puppetry conference in, I can't remember what year, that summit, 2002, I'm looking at my notes here, and it actually blew my mind because our small one-van community had expanded to film and TV puppeteers, and wow. I, at that time, I'd done the Wiggles, but I'd never really lived in that world. It's a very different world, and it was the first time I felt like people were coming together. Yeah. And now uh, I've always, like, I feel like as I get older, I'm more interested in an academic and historic kind of connection to puppetry, which makes me a bit sad in some ways. But Uh, I also, (laughs) it's like less hands-on, more trying to capture moments. But um, just really being a part of that broader puppet in Australia world. I was always aware of Unima and I had from time to time on and off been members, but I always knew that people that I respected were on the committee. So it was something that I always hoped to achieve one day would be to be on the Unimar committee, which I very fortunately now am with you. Just being privy to um, even international conversations that happen that as a person who's not on that committee just have no real, no understanding that these conversations are happening between puppeteers, looking for ways to assist each other in different places around the world, looking ways that we can inspire each other following COVID and the lockdowns and people not being able to be near each other and finding ways that you can bring people together Mm. or as the motto says, friendship through puppetry. It's actually a real thing. Yeah, I think it is. And first of all, shout out to Sue and Steve because we love them and everything that Sydney Puppet Theatre has done. But I think it's also worth mentioning now that, you know, we are going through a war in Europe and uh, Unimar is doing the Free of Strings Fund to try and support puppeteers in Ukraine and around that area to try and find safety. So if anyone's interested, I'll post links uh, to the Free of Strings Fund and what Unimar is doing internationally 
for that cause. You are listening to Talking Sock with One Orange Sock and Larissa Deke. We will be right back after a short break. Make sure you hit subscribe and follow at One Orange Sock Productions on Instagram and more with Lara in just a minute. Want to start a conversation at your next gig or festival? Then grab your wallets because we've got merch. Head to our Redbubble store to get your hands on some signature One Orange Sock designs. We believe that podcasts should be advert-free. So if you like what you're listening to, there's a new way to help support our podcast. No monthly subscriptions, just a simple tip to share your kindness and to help us get by. Follow the link in the podcast notes or at oneorangesock.com to buy us a coffee. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Talking Sock. Hello, darlings. This is Ronnie Burkett and you're listening to Talking Sock, my favorite puppetry podcast. Welcome back. You are listening to Talking Sock with me, Alex Joy and Larissa Deek. I want to discuss with you, Lara, the intersection of puppetry arts and circus. I know so many puppeteers in Melbourne here uh, who do both and who use those practical skills in their circus arts and clowning and then apply that to their puppetry practice. And you're a performer and stilt walker. So are you able to comment on how you combine circus in your work and how do the the sort of genres of circus and puppetry have similarity, but also deviate from one another? Where are the parallels there? Yeah, thanks, Alex. I think there's a really strong connection between visual and physical theatre. So non-text-based theatre, not always non-text-based, but non-text-heavy, I guess. So moving away from the written word as the the beginning point of making theatre. And I think puppetry and visual theatre Physical theatre all live in a world that's moving away from the author or the playwright as being the primal point. That's probably spoken a bit weirdly, but it's really about using which storytelling form works best for you or whoever you're working with. So people that are, I guess, trained through the circus, they are very much about storytelling with their bodies. and Many puppeteers, are obviously, it's a very physical skill set, so they're also performing with their body. So there's, I mean, that very basic intersection, but I think also the storytelling that moves away from the published script and starting with the body into making storytelling, that's where they kind of connect in another way that you can start with the body or start with an object or puppet and tell the story in a visual and physical way. I know a lot of my peers, they have gone in between working with puppetry, with physical theatre, and even with the visual arts because they are so connected. And even like myself, when I first studied, I realised in Sydney that there were so many actors that I needed to specialise, which is part of why I decided to focus on puppetry. And even then when I went back to uni, I did a a practical project with Stalker Theatre Company and learned how to stilt walk and then fortuitously got to, you know, stilt walk at the, the closing of the Sydney 2000 Olympics and David Clarkson wow. from Stalker asked me to join the company and basically spent, well, I think like about two years touring the world with um, four riders, the stilt acrobatic show, which was quite a, a privilege to be a part of really 
I feel like it just is. They're connected in so many ways. I can't draw apart why or how, but they just are. <laughs> That's awesome. I didn't realise you did the Olympics as well. Um, I and did the Paralympics also. Nice. Oh, and, and we forget about that so often. That was actually an equally excellent opening ceremony and closing ceremony. The Paralympics was superior in my mind because I worked with Plasticiens Volant, so they had inflatables, but I like to think of them as inverse marionettes. So the, the puppet is up in the sky, then you have your puppeteers on the ground manipulating them. And so I got to work on one of the large angels that was in the opening ceremony and at the end I think we're all fish or different kind of creatures at the um, the closing. It was so much fun and great opportunity yeah. to work with French artists, actually. Yeah, you've got all these experiences of working with different forms of puppetry. And as a maker, because I know that you also make puppets and you make shadow work and crankies, where does your material inquiry take you? I've noticed especially with the crankies, these moving 2D stories that use paper scrolls pulled from left to right on a crank what drew you to those, but what do you make and what kind of stories interest you when you make those kinds of puppets? Hmm. Okay. So the crankies, I just basically started tinkering with because I think as a parent, it's really hard to collaborate on a a regular schedule with collaborators. So it's kind of like, oh, well, I have to just make some, something for myself if I want to keep making stuff. So exploring with the idea of the cranky because it's tiny but then more I did I realized you actually need more hands so then I started getting my daughters involved and so they would actually puppeteer what I created and I would crank because the cranking you need to keep the tension on the paper you need to turn the cranks at a certain pace and so as its role I would basically created landscapes and I guess background scenery on the, the paper and then a bunch of little shadow puppets on thin wire to come in and out of the landscape. So the, the girls would puppeteer those. I think I did one for one of the Unima Halloween uh, Zoom meetings, which was really fun. And I did another one actually for the, right, it was the Hanji paper project from the Korean uh, Unima. So they made yes. it, it was like a short film. And I basically had pages and pages in so many different sketchbooks of drawings that I just tinker like little scenes and I thought it's a really great way to animate them without, you know, going through the whole process of being an animator. So when I was at uni at Western Sydney, I did study animation a little bit, but I was always drawn to the hand-drawn, which is so time-heavy Yeah, that it's kind of like, okay, so how do you, how do you animate as a puppeteer not just puppeteer, but how do you mix those two? In fact, I, I really want to, um, I've got an idea in one of my notebooks about animating houses, so it's called Moving House, but wanting to move between shadow and animation and finding the tech that I I need to upskill in this little moment. And I've got a friend, Rob Corliss, actually, he's a, an animator, and he said that he would help mentor me on just simple uh, animation techniques that might be able to realize that. So I'm, some, that's something I'm looking forward to. I want to pick up on that moving house element of your work right now because there is so much going on in the world right now. And I remember from your Instagram, the Baba Yaga chicken-legged hut, uh, which is literally a, a house on stilts walking away from what's happening up in northern New South Wales and Queensland in the floods that have just been just bombarding that part of our country. 
And I also know that you uh, have Ukrainian heritage and you are witnessing with your family a, a war that is going on. And I really want to know about those two projects and 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 how you how you process it through your drawing as well as your your kind of two D animative art. Uh, thanks. I've really been exploring my connection to Ukraine lately because of the war, and I'm finding a really um, I find it a little bit difficult to articulate because I've literally never been there. My father wasn't born there, but his father was, and his family were pushed off country. So wow, it's a connection to a land that I've never been on, but I feel strongly drawn to and drawn to explore cultural practice, I guess, like looking at paper cut, looking at embroideries, looking at different imagery and storytelling from the region. And well, it's funny, even as I'm looking through my sketchbook right now, it's the Brisbane flood, it's 28th of February. And then the next page, there's a Slava Ukraini. So a picture of a tear. So it's been now like more than 60 days and mm. it's something um my my sketchbook has changed to a massive sea of blue and yellow and sunflowers and drawings of sunflowers and trying to um unpack I guess my my relationship to these storytelling. So when when I was a little girl my dido my dad said gave me a book. Well, Ivan Bilibin is a beautiful art nouveau artist from Russia. He illustrated Russian folk tales. And now as an adult, I'm trying to unpack because I never really got to ask about, well, which are the Russian stories and which are the Ukrainian stories? And mm. is there, like, is it semantics to ask that? And as an outsider, to some extent, I don't really know. So my sketchbook then kind of morphed into not just Baba Yaga's chicken-legged hut, but also like the classic Queenslander on stilts walking away. So using paper cuts and pixelated kind of uh, images to play with the different kinds of houses. Like in my dream world, that also I've got a vision of a show where from time to time the houses just get up and move away and also a vision of a sequence where there's like a like a Space Invaders game of all different pixelated houses mm. being shot at and getting up and moving away. So wow. I've got all these visions in my mind's eye, but you know, it's such a big deal to bring something to the stage. And this is slightly controversial, but I feel like um, there used to be a festival up here called Out of the Box Festival. It was a festival for children and it's kind of just disappeared. And it was a really great opportunity for um, theatre makers to experiment with theatre for young people. And they had lots of sites around the QPAC and the um, cultural area on the Brisbane River there where they'd have a weekend of uh, theatre for young people. And it was quite amazing. When I first moved to Brisbane in 2003, like they would even at the beginning of the shows have someone with lights at, you know, half half light talk about to the children, this is a theatre performance. We are at half light so you can see what's going on. You can see the artifice here. Over here is the sound guy. He's going to be making the sound. If you hear something loud, just look over that that's where it's coming. Like really... Wow. Um, educating the children about how theatre is made and the magic of theatre. So I really remember that. And so uh, when COVID hit in 2020, there was meant to be a um, out-of-the-box festival, but it's kind of just got absorbed into QPAC's internal programming. 
I don't I don't understand it. And I feel like there's a loss of um, possibility for people to create new works and present them in a festival setting, especially for theatre for young people. Yeah. I, I think that's really interesting. Can you also tell us a bit more about what's happening in the landscape of puppetry arts in Mianjin? Like what what other big companies or or, or performances dedicate themselves to puppetry? At yeah, the so absolutely. The most well-known uh, are Dead Puppet Society. They've literally just come back off a national tour. They recently secured a studio at the um, Princess Theatre, which is Brisbane's oldest theatre, which has recently been renovated and is very beautiful. So they're probably the most well-known company. Then you've got Larrikin on, well, they're on Bribey Island, but Larrikin with Brett and Elisa, they make really successful work for under fives primarily. They also working on a new work, Hijabi Girl, which I think is great for them because they're stepping outside of their work for, well, it's a a narrative-based theatre piece, which puppets made especially for it. They've paid voice actors, the children that they've got. Like it's a, I think it's going to be a really great thing for them, but it's a new, new thing. It's probably, um, as we speak, they're, they're still working on it. You've also got David Hamilton. So he's a world acclaimed, you know, cabaret style marionettist. I've actually never met him in Brisbane. So I'm, one day I'm going to orchestrate that. Then there's independent artists. So um, people like I've got a friend, Anna Straker. She makes small solo shows, Umami Mermaid, Boy Who Stole Teeth, works that can fit into a suitcase and she can travel to regional festivals or small-scale events. And then you've got younger or emerging artists, and I think they're taking a more like multidisciplinary approach in using puppetry as a just one of the tools in storytelling mm. uh, their theatrical presentation, like whatever. So I think a, a lot of people at the moment use the form of puppetry within their bigger um, bigger piece, but as just a tiny storytelling device. People um, in a contemporary setting are more more like bowbirds. I guess they take a little bit of all different kind of skills and don't become a master in one particular area before they try something else. And I think that's just the contemporary model of theatre making, in, in fact, you know, arts practice generally. Yeah. Uh, because it's appropriation. Yeah, I, and I think we're doing a lot of that in postmodern work and we're appropriating things sometimes ethically and other things less ethically. But I do think you're right. Like I, I was just speaking with Sarah Kriegler and Jacob Williams and, and they also mentioned that they they use puppetry as the correct tool for the, the correct kind of storytelling for that work. And I think that's really good. And maybe it happens at the expense of maybe and this is a little bit controversial, but maybe sometimes the quality of what could be done with those tools, but at least it keeps, I think, the art form alive and active and present in the wider theatrical landscape, perhaps. Yeah. How do you feel I about think, that? Yeah, I think I think that's right because people, um, they want to try new techniques and they want to, you know, become like in the old school style to become, a, you know, Indonesian style dalang, shadow puppeteer, you would spend years and years and years just understudying the puppet master before you were even allowed to use the puppets kind of thing. And so now we're more like, okay, let's give it a go, try things that speak to us. And I think you're right. Sometimes the quality does suffer, but I think 
because performance is such an ephemeral art form that it doesn't actually matter so much. Actually, that sounds like I'm saying the quality of puppetry shouldn't matter. It does. But what I'm saying in the moment when people are using different kinds of tools, I guess people just do what's right for them. So some people, they're just going to have one form of puppetry and going to learn that and they're going to excel in that. So Dennis Murphy, I'm just going to talk about him. So he is, I think, the, the most perfect comic timing I've ever seen in a performer. His comic timing is exquisite. Agreed. And he really Agreed. focused on his his hand and glove puppets and and his vent as well. But he's so good because he just does what he does, you know, and he doesn't go, oh, yeah, I'll try working in a, a collective and try these new things. He just keeps doing that thing. And I think um we, well, I'm old now, but the younger performers, we sometimes go, oh, I, I don't want to, waste my time learning just about that thing. I want to learn everything. And it's kind of um, gorging ourselves on what's possible to have. And uh, it's not that the work is poor because of it, but it has a different quality, I think. Mm. I think it's rare in Australia that puppetry is done by anyone full time. And we have multiple ways of sustaining ourselves. And perhaps that's what also informs the fact that so many artists are multidisciplinary. And I know that this is the case for you. Like, I'd like to ask you about your work as an arts worker in Australia and in Queensland. What work do you do and how does that inform your creative work and how does that maybe potentially make you multidisciplinary by default, by an economic choice? There's pretty much one professional puppet theatre company in Brisbane and if you wanted to make your living with a state theatre company, that's almost impossible as well. Like, there's no state puppet theatre. so. Generally, people are independent artists that collaborate with their peers or find ways to connect with people that they might learn from. Uh, And it's interesting, like even in the little period of time since COVID has been among us, people's arts practice shifts because like there was a period where I worked in China in 2019 with a group of 21 kids for um, Shanghai's Art Space for Kids and made a black box theatre show with creative play and um, puppets with these wonderful children, did a performance, and afterwards I was invited to come back in 2020 to four different theatres to make work with four new groups of kids, and that's never going to happen again. Like that just disappeared in the passing of a, a virus. So that whole world just disappeared. Before that, I would do things like I had an artist in residency at uh, what is the Starlight Room at the hospital, the children's hospital here. So a week of making stuff out of paper, we made a paper world. And before that, I'd do, you know, go into schools and do um, a puppetry workshop at a random school, learning about well technology, but also storytelling with puppets. So how to make your drawings, animate through shadow puppetry. I got to work with. A song Room, which is a national arts organisation, but I was really lucky in that I, they usually focus on music, but I worked at Milpera, which is a, a language intensive school. So students that come to Queensland from overseas before they go into mainstream schools, they basically have to get up to a certain competency. And um, I got to go to that school over 18 months and do storytelling and literacy with multiple class groups and it was so rewarding because one of them I got to stay with for 18 months and make stories, 
present puppetry to their peers. I feel like they'll go into the school system in Australia and think puppetry is just one of the things that happens in Australia, which makes me happy. Uh, I work at the Museum of Brisbane as my day job, and part of that is a museum educator. So I started there just thinking I'd do a couple of shifts in the learn department, and um, as it's time's gone on and COVID sort of changed the way that we work, I find myself there as a specialist tour guide and and in their learn team and totally nothing to do with puppetry, but it's all about storytelling. And I think for me, that's the key connector. Yeah, right. Obviously, yeah, working with Volcana, working with like different organisations, even like as a parent, I've chosen to be the primary caregiver of uh, the girls and I haven't always stayed home. So I'll take uh, jobs all over the place, but it's really important I've found to find like-minded peers to connect with within my local community and my school community. So finding other women that are creative and found this network of people. One of my friends, Kai, her ceramics practice is like fantastic. And we've worked on, well, I'll say award-winning, uh, what was it, like a, a yarn bombing project that we had that was basically to encourage active school travel in the community. And we got funding for that. She you know, got that through council and we could sort of put our creative practice into our local community, which meant that we could be nearby to the kids, which um, is quite good. And that's sort of grown, like that connection with her has grown up to being part of theme teams at the Laneway festivals when they come to Brisbane and being part of, you know, the install of these amazing visual art installations, which are all tangential to puppetry but I think the arts is are so broad that I still think they're all related that's awesome and they are I I agree with you completely and I think also the art that happens on a local level is just as important as the art that happens at dead puppet society (laughs) you know uh it's it's really about that community fostering and I feel like you do that so successfully and there's just so many examples that we've barely scratched the surface of today. I want to ask you the the big question though, Lara, who are your heroes in puppetry, especially the contemporary heroes? And even as an artist, who are you grateful for having in your time as an artist so far? And yeah, who are the names that we should know? Thank you. I feel like some of the names you already know because my performance mentors, I will say, are Sue Wallace, definitely Richard Bradshaw, Dennis Murphy, And Sue, especially because she instilled the notion that puppetry can inspire joy and she always encouraged to find the joy in the work, which I think um, is something that's really important. So I'll I'll say in Australia, those people. I'm going to also add on to that, obviously, Jim Henson, Norman Hetherington as well, because they were part of my growing up. But then as a maker, I think Steve Coop really inspired me. and. Steve Howarth from Earth, like his designs and puppets are beautiful. And then I'm going to also mention Bryony Anderson, who works with Terrapin at the moment, but she's had such an amazing commitment to sustainability in her work, making puppets, but it never suffers because she's using recycled materials. Like I once worked with Windmill, I don't know, 2002 or something, doing Wilfred Gordon McDonald Partridge, and she had made a chicken that was, it was the most ergonomic puppet that I'd ever um, manipulated. So 
it was quite fantastic. And she actually, I think she studied at the University of Wollongong because I went to um, her end of year show and it was an auction and she'd made this massive array of farmyard creatures. And even today, as I'm saying, I'm lamenting the fact that I didn't have enough money to purchase a lamb, like sort of like an kind of like an animatronic, kind of like a puppet. You could move its tail. It was so adorable. And I still even now reflect the fact that someone else bought that and I did not. So as a maker, I think Bryony is just like such an inspiration because she also works with communities as well. And really her commitment to sustainability. I think that's the key part about her work. Yeah, Bryony is not someone who's been mentioned before. And I think there is absolutely credit due there. The work is visually stunning. Laura, is there anything that you as a puppeteer or even as an artist or performer, if you could speak to the the younger version of yourself, what would you like that person to know about their, their work or about their future or their arts practice? I went to a small school that didn't even have drama, my high school, Tari High. And when I was at school, any of those regional travelling groups that would come through, I would just watch every single theatre performance and I was like, oh, my God, imagine if I could work in theatre and get paid. What a job. That just sounds amazing. And I think as I moved and studied, I realised that you just have to do it. Like you just have to keep having faith that the choices that you make are going to lead to another good opportunity. So even, you know, meeting Sue and Steve in a workshop, I got to then work with them, perform their marionette show at Australia's Wonderland inside a fiberglass tree, which was amazing. And also perform my own um, shadow puppet show, The Firebird, at the Rocks Puppet Cottage. And I, it's my favourite work memory. I'm 50 this year and my favourite job I ever had was working at the Rocks Puppet Cottage doing my own solo shadow puppet show. I would get there in the morning, I'd sweep the floor, the children would come in and do three shows a day, I would sweep it again and, you know, come back for the whole school holiday week. It was in a beautiful heritage sandstone building in the rocks in Sydney and I would not have had that opportunity if I didn't just keep making those connections with um, the people that I met along the way. And pretty much all the jobs I have, actually someone recently outside of the world of arts asked me how I got some specific job. I was like, oh, that's because I knew so-and-so. And she was shocked that it was like a nepotistic kind of uh, way to get jobs. And I actually thought, I don't know what jobs I've had that I wasn't recommended by somebody else or didn't have because I knew someone else. And I think there's a a community that builds up and we all kind of have uh, people that we know that we share with other people. If someone's going to Sydney, so I did a job for Earth because up in Rockhampton and Ipswich, because none of their puppeteers could cross the border. They asked me, was there someone that I could recommend? So you just recommend these people. It's a different, I think it's a totally different industry to many others. And is nepotistic to some degree, but I think it's also very generous in that we share each other's names. So, you know, I worked on that film on the Gold Coast because Jonathan Oxlade had said, do you want this job? Someone else will say, do you know someone for that? So I'll give someone else's name. And we really share opportunities for each other as well. I think you asked me about how myself as a a young person would be, just like really just 
it's never going to be, it's not full-time and it isn't full-time and it's very rare to have a sustainable job full-time in the puppetry arts and so you have to find ways that you can um, connect with what gives you joy outside of that and find the, the, the work where you can and to make your own work. You have to make your own work. And That's you have to it. keep practising too. Like my notebooks, they're just full of ideas that have never come to the stage and maybe one day they will. Hopefully they will, but, you know, you just have to keep putting the ideas down. I want to ask you one more question and I'm sorry, I, I, just, I just have to know, what's your favourite kind of story? Uh, well, I like... All different kinds of stories, but I do like the uh, like a hero's tale, you know, and all the the hardships along the way, being overcome, and uh, you know the unexpected friendships happening along the way, and people working out problems. So I like those kind of epic tales, but I also like stories that leave you wondering where the connections were after you've left the theatre space. So my brain just took me to Tinker's. New Dress, Ronnie Burkett's show was based in World War II in the ghettos of Warsaw, I, I vaguely remember. But I still think about that today because it was like in a world of cabaret where he had historical stuff but also creative storytelling that he's made himself with those beautiful marionettes and with his beautiful storytelling style. But shadows that um, I guess echo down into the future, like I can only hope that someone once see something of mine that they go, oh, that really stayed with me, that image or that echo of an idea or concept stayed with me over time. So I don't think you can, there's no um, formula for creating that. I think that's just something that comes through trial and making work. Like I think theatre is a very specific art form in that you have to do it. Like to act is to do and puppetry is the same. Like you can have a bunch of dolls on the table but unless you pick them up and animate them, they're just dolls on the table with no life. So the storytelling comes through us actively engaging with, I guess, movement and imagination and whatever the story is. Lara, we are out of time. Thank you so much for talking with us today. I have so, so enjoyed this conversation. You can find Lara at SneakySDeek on Instagram. Thank you for listening with us today and make sure you subscribe for more great puppetry arts and practitioner interviews. I have been Alex Joy, that puppet guy, and we will talk sock again soon. Thank you, Lara. Oh, my God. Alex, thank you so much for inviting me in. I'm just going to say I listened to your podcast before I met you on the Unimar Committee, and it is a real privilege to be invited to speak with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, that makes me all warm and fuzzy. All right, we're out. Thanks for listening. Now we want to hear from you. Each episode we post a series of stories and questions related to our guests. Follow us on Instagram at One Orange Sock Productions or subscribe to us on YouTube at One Orange Sock. You can also find our episode blog at OneOrangeSock.com. Our title music is composed by Elizabeth Maniscalco and our cover art is by Chad Barnier. Without them, this podcast could not be possible. Stay tuned. We'll be back soon with another great episode of Talking Sock. <laughs>